Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. So one day, my fifth grade daughter, Vera, came home from school with an interesting assignment. It was reading material speaking about the pros and cons of zoos. I love going to zoos with my kids, always have, so the cons part, I guess, took me by surprise. As long as it's a well-managed zoo and they take great care of the animals, I was surprised about the cons that were listed in this reading material. The reading material contained some pretty strong anti-zoo sections, essentially saying that they were outdated, and the gist of it was that zoos should not be supported by us. Really surprised me. So even though the arguments against zoos bothered me, before I took a position on this with my fifth grader, I did some digging to find out what this was all about. I reached out to Dominic Jeremy, the Director General of the Zoological Society of London. Dominic and I got to speak not only about zoos, but also about zoonotic diseases, which are infectious diseases that are transmitted between species from animals to humans or from humans to animals. With COVID still a threat around the world, and now with news of the first case of monkeypox being detected in Massachusetts and outbreaks of monkeypox in Europe, this was definitely the right time to speak to Dominic Jeremy to learn not only about zoos, but also about zoonotic diseases like COVID, monkeypox, and other diseases, and the important work of the Zoological Society of London. By the way, toward the end of the interview, my daughter Vera gets to ask Dominic her question about zoos, and I really liked his answer. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So delighted to have Dominic Jeremy with me. Dominic, tell us a little bit about what the Zoological Society of London is all about and how you ended up in the role as Director General. Well, I came to the Zoological Society of London, Jason, to save the world, one species at a time. Uh, and at uh, ZSL, um, I lead a passionate group of about a thousand of us in the UK and in Africa and Asia. And we're working hard to create a world where wildlife thrives. And that's basically what, what ZSL is about. And we do that by um, research, uh, scientific research, by muddy boots conservation um, out in the field and by engaging the public through our zoos. And we've been doing this for nearly 200 years. Um, Darwin was one of our people. He did a lot of research 
um, with us. Uh, and we came to prominence most recently, our science, because we do a lot around the science of zoonotic diseases and how you stop it migrating from wildlife to people. So what are zoonotic diseases? Give me some examples. And, and what do you mean when you say that you do sort of the science around zoonotic diseases spilling into people? So um, spillover of, of zoonotic diseases, um, these are diseases that originate in wildlife. Uh, and about 75% of what you and I might catch of new diseases, they come from wildlife. And that's always been the case. Uh, these diseases are endemic. That means they, they've always been around in, in wildlife. Things like COVID, um, things like SARS, but also Ebola, Nipah virus, diseases with massively higher um, casualty rates, fatality rates than, than COVID. And what we do is we look at these diseases in wildlife populations and understand what's happening with them there and understand what the crossover events are, what it is that leads these diseases to move into people, and then to see how we can break that um, bridging event so that um, these really, really um, challenging um, afflictions don't actually move into the human population as well. And how do we tackle them before they actually reach us? You know, COVID, of course, shut the world down for almost two years, and, and we're still battling it. How do we use your hard work and the science to try to prevent something like that? Well, you've really put your finger on, on something important there, because prevention is a lot better than cure. Um, and the whole COVID race with vaccines has been just the most fantastic piece of human collaboration and brilliant science. But if you if you think about prevention further upstream, um, you want to identify ways of reducing the, the bridging opportunities for diseases to, to leap from wildlife to people. And that means, for example, rethinking the way in which we regulate the illegal wildlife trade, um, or rather we regulate legal wildlife trade. Um, pursuing illegal wildlife trade as a serious organized crime, um, reducing human encroachment on, on wild animal habitats. We were working with the government of Uganda where people were catching Ebola from bats. And one of the reasons they were catching Ebola from bats, these bats had Ebola for, for generations, for centuries, um, but they'd been quietly living in a space that had no human contact whatsoever. And humans were encroaching on that space. So it's about um, it's about uh, trying to change human behaviors and trying to learn and teach people not to move into spaces where there are going to be wildlife with these types of diseases. And and when it comes then to sort of illegal wildlife poaching, things like that, it's not just about stopping inhumane treatment of animals and ripping off tusks from elephants, all these disgusting, horrible things. But now it also, and I don't know if my listeners know this, but it also needs to be pointed out that it could cause tremendous destruction to people's lives, the economy, the world indeed. And I'm not sure I've seen that kind of um, connection point when people are trying to save wild animals, all good reasons, noble reasons and all that, but the impact that it has to humanity. Indeed. Uh, and it's a way of 
thinking about um, a kind of global balance between between all aspects of nature. And you know, we're humans. We're we're animals. We're mammals. We're another bit of nature, but we're an incredibly successful predator. Uh, and so we've wiped out a lot of biodiversity across the world. And the the impact of that. Um, I mean, Jason, you spoke about zoonotic diseases. That is one impact. But just think about, um, for example, soil. Um, as we impoverish the soil through pollution, about 25% of the Earth's species live in soil. And if we mess up soil biodiversity, then that is our entire land-based food system completely uh, kaput. It will cease to function. Um, or you think about... Um, killing of um, pollinators by, uh, by pesticides. Well, that has a massive impact on our ability to grow our own food crops. Um, and you think about the impact on the oceans of over overfishing, but also of, uh, of pollution, um, plastics, other pollution in the oceans too. Um, we've seen devastations in my own country um, around uh, the UK, the British Isles, of the fishing stocks by massive overfishing. And that has a very direct effect on on the price of um, fish in our supermarkets um, and on poverty, um, you know, amongst many communities in the UK as a result. We're going to take a break for a moment. Stay tuned. I'll be back with Dominic Jeremy in just a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Dominic, do different countries have more success than others in fighting these problems? And if so, what sets those countries apart? Well, this is really interesting because... ZSL, we're a very science-based organization. So I think I'm going to surprise you with my my first four example. Uh, and we, <laughs> it's America, <we've> been, America. <laughs> wasn't actually, but uh, um, you know the US does a does a pretty good job. So do so do um, many Western European countries, um, and that tends to be about regulation. Um, but my four example was actually um, some of the. Uh, Places where indigenous peoples um, live, and of course, there are indigenous peoples in the in the US, um, but um, also in Asia and Africa. Um, we, as a science-based organization, have been learning from them about how, for generations, they've lived alongside wildlife, um, lived alongside um, species with endemic diseases, and that has actually been a a mutually supportive symbiotic relationship, and it's worked. So there are quite a few examples from indigenous peoples um, you know, across the world where, where this has really worked. Um, but it also tends to be where there's really strong regulation and where the law enforcement agencies, customs, others, they really pursue 
um, the often um, trafficking uh, criminal organizations um, that have enormously long um, supply chains across the world of to order um, illegal wildlife uh, that they that they trade. And these animals, when they are um, incredibly stressed, they exude pathogens, and that's when you're most likely to get these crossover, these spillover events. We spoke about how bats have lived with Ebola for centuries and how it trickled into the human population. Why do you think COVID emerged now? So I think it's spread now because of global mobility around the world. Um, but I think it emerged basically because of our dysfunctional relationship with nature. So it's that habitat loss, uh, forcing people into closer proximity with wildlife. It's the accelerating loss of biodiversity across the globe. Um, at ZSL, we do the science around something called the Living Planet Index. And this is a great um, barometer of what's happening to biodiversity. Um, and it measures it since 1970. And it essentially tracks a 67% loss in population abundance in biodiversity since 1970. And that is an unbelievable um, deterioration in our, um, in our overall habitat and environment. And there are three causes causes of that. It's human-caused land use change, it's human-caused climate change, and it's the illegal wildlife trade. And so that continual and accelerating loss of biodiversity is what is knocking the balance of nature completely out of kilter and giving rise to the ability of um, diseases like COVID to emerge much more easily and more frequently. Could you give my listeners some examples of what the impact is to their everyday lives as a result of this biodiversity loss? So zoonotic disease is a biggie, um, but there's food chain breakdown. Um, and I mentioned overfishing and ocean degradation earlier. Um, there are going to be impacts on each of us um, from the uh, increasing scarcity of some crops um, as we see uh, pollinators, as we see um, uh, soil um, insects um, increasingly uh, being threatened by the way in which we do farming. Um, but actually, to flip it the other way around, some of the many of the solutions for biodiversity are excellent for that kind of twin threat we face around climate change. Um, so replanting biodiverse forests, moving away from monocultures and single sorts of trees or replanting mangroves builds enormous coastal resilience, which is incredibly important, um, whether you're in Florida or the Philippines, um, when those storms come in. Um, and it reduces um, you know, all the issues that we see with um, biodiversity loss because they're incredibly biodiverse. So it requires planning and thinking about and a change in the way in which we engage with nature. Could you give my listeners some practical and realistic advice uh, if they want to do something about this, if they want to help this cause? So essentially, the answer is change what you do. Um, if you are a consumer, then actively opt for, for example, food products that are uh, sustainable. So you can get really sustainable palm oil. It doesn't have to be um, a, a negative product to buy. Um, if you're an investor, look for the um, ESG, the Environment, Social and Governance um, commitments um, that companies make. If you're a voter, 
look for what your governments or your authorities are doing on policies that encourage nature restoration. Um, you would expect me to say this, Jason, um, because I run a non-profit, an NGO that is in conservation, um, support NGOs like ours um, that are doing targeted conservation because that works. In, in my country, in the River Thames, it was a completely dead river about 50 years ago, and now it is absolutely thriving with seals and eels, and that's been conscious conservation that we're proud to have been part of. And there are many examples of that having worked in different parts of the world. Do people realize that, I mean, obviously London is such a popular tourist city, when they go to see the River Thames, do they actually understand the tremendous progress and how you achieve that? Quite often, as you look at the River Thames, it's kind of brown and muddy looking. So I think you're probably right, they don't. But then we have flurries on social media where somebody will see a seal. Um, they will seal. They will see some of the um, wildlife that is in real abundance there. And um, people then get really excited about it. We did a, um, a social media campaign where we invited people as citizen scientists to count seals for us and to download an app where they could add in where they'd uh, seen the seal, what time of day it was, and what part of the River Thames it was. And that was a great way of engaging people on, on really having a bit of fun, but also participating in real science that, that gives a sense of that regrowth um, of the Thames. And the reason that the Thames is, is now in a much better state um, is because um, we've worked with a lot of the water companies, sewage businesses, a lot of the um, ferry and other businesses that use the Thames, and they've changed their practices. It hasn't necessarily cost them a great deal of money, but it's made such a difference to the, to the living, breathing river that flows through the middle of our capital. Dominic, my daughter Vera recently had a school assignment about zoos. I want to have her ask you a question, if that's okay. Please do. Hello, Mr. Dominic. My name is Vera Greenblatt. I'm in fifth grade now, and sometimes I'm a guest on my dad's podcast, The Diplomat. We had an assignment at school recently where we read about the pros and cons of zoos. I really like zoos. I like going to the Bronx Zoo with my family and seeing the animals and learning about them. But in the reading material we received at school, there were some people arguing that zoos are outdated and should be closed. The material we got describes how zoos are bad for different reasons. One of the letters in the material asked us what we would think about an alien landing on Earth, tranquilizing a person, putting them in a tiny metal crate, taking them away from their home and family throwing them in a cage, not really caring about the person and only caring about having a human for the collection. I think this is an unfair example because it has so little context for all the many good things zoos do. And it does not describe what all zoos do. What do you think? Can I still enjoy my time at the zoo and think of a good zoo as a place people can learn important lessons about animals and life? Well, Vera, thank you for an absolutely brilliant question. And I think you're right. Good zoos are exactly there for people to learn how best to protect animals um, in the wild um, and to value animals. And good zoos don't take animals from the wild. They're, they're born there. And in a way, they're a bit more like uh, Noah's Ark they provide a safe home for endangered animals, while conservationists and scientists 
like those we've got in, in London Zoo at ZSL, work hard to make their wild homes safe for those animals again. And at London Zoo, we've got lots of animals that have died out in the wild because of some pretty bad decisions that people have taken. But it's thanks to our scientists and conservationists who are working with good zoos like London Zoo that we've been able to create some safe homes for them again in the wild. And that is big animals like oryxes, larger than me, and, and tiny dormice. Um, and we even work with, with smaller snails that are tiny little creatures. And we've only been able to send them back into the wild because we kept them safe in zoos when their habitats were destroyed. We learned how best to keep them safe in the wild while they were with us. And then we worked really hard to reintroduce them. So I think there's a fantastic role for good zoos. Uh, and I think you can rest easy, Vera. But thank you ever so much for asking that question. Thank you, Mr. Jeremy, for your helpful answer. Dominic, what's your favorite part of the London Zoo? Gosh, I love all of London Zoo, Jason. Um, I, there's a favorite bit, which is as I come in in the morning, uh, I'm very close where I work is very close to where the penguins are. And I hear them um, squawking away as they're fed. And there is this amazing smell of fish. I, mean, I love seeing the reaction of kids to penguins, seeing them underwater. They get incredibly excited about that. But, but my, my favorite bit of all is the part that's got mini beasts in. And this is an area with insects and really small creatures. And it has um, a walkthrough area you can go into with massive spider webs in it and some fairly big spiders. And one of the fun things about that, and we do serious things there like working with uh, arachnophobes to help them get over their fear of spiders. Um, but one of the fun things is seeing uh, young people and the not so young outside this area, stealing themselves, daring each other to go in amongst the spiders. And some of them have got the courage to do it. And some of them just can't make themselves do it. And that's a lot of fun. Dominic, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us, for educating us. And uh, I appreciate the sensitivity and how you answered my my daughter Vera's question. An absolute pleasure, Jason. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, a fascinating conversation with Dominic Jeremy, the Director General of the Zoological Society of London. I'm glad that Dominic thinks we can still visit zoos. I think my family has learned a lot from zoos over the years. It's instilled in us an understanding and appreciation of the wild that would probably be hard to do without zoos. I also appreciated how Dominic handled my daughter Vera's question. And I learned a lot about zoonotic diseases, a good time to do that, not only because of COVID, but now also about monkeypox. I hope that you found this podcast informative. And if you did, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Spotify, and everywhere else. Do follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. And do please go to Amazon and pre-order my book, In the Path of Abraham. It's going to be available in July you go to Amazon and search in the path of Abraham or search Jason Greenblatt, you'll find it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat brought to you by Newsweek.